1897 B.C., when God made a covenant with Abram, he was 99 years old. Uh, recorded for us in Genesis 17, 21, and 26. In 1871 B.C., um, 25, no, I'm so sorry, um, he made a covenant with Abraham at 99. In 1871 B.C., uh, Abraham is offered up, Abraham offers up Isaac. He offers up Isaac, and according to, according to Josephus, we don't know if this is accurate or not, but just to give you an idea, so uh, in, in Josephus's history of the Jews, Antiquities of the Jews, it's fascinating reading. He was a Jewish historian who lived during the um, siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Um, he wrote extensive volumes of histories of the Jewish people and gets a lot of his information from ancient historians that would have been much um, more well-known back in the day. Of course, this is before the library in Alexandria burned down and all of this stuff, so... Um, there um, was a lot of information, but according to Josephus, Isaac was 25 years old at the time that him and Abraham went to the mountain to offer up Isaac. And if you remember from the biblical account, it doesn't tell us how old Isaac is, but it does tell us that Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice. And if you think about the amount of wood that Abraham would have taken up there. It's not a small amount. So Isaac would not have been, he could not have been too young. He would have had to have been old enough to carry a sizable amount of wood on his back uh, going up to, uh, to the sacrifice. Um, 1871 B.C., in 1859 B.C., Sarah, Abraham's wife, Sarah dies in, in, in Hebron, Hebron at the age of 127. What's interesting about that is Sarah is the only woman in the Bible uh, in which her age at her death is given to us. No other woman in the Bible is her age at death recorded, but Sarah's is. And it was on the occasion of her death that Abraham buys the cave in the field of Machpelah. He buys it from Ephron. And it is the first piece of property that Abraham purchases in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. So the first property purchased by Abraham was a burial plot that he buys he buys this cave in this field so that he can bury his wife, and then he will also you know, one day be buried there, 1859 B.C. In 1856 B.C., three years later, Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. Uh, so after Sarah dies, Isaac is grieving the death of his mother, 
And one of the reasons that he um, is comforted in having a wife is because his mother died. So at the age of 40, Isaac marries Rebecca. Did, uh, of course, the scripture tells us this, that uh, he was 40 years old. But when you're reading the Bible and you're not paying attention to the dates, one of the things that I advise you to do anytime you see a date or an age, uh, there's not dates given, but there's ages given. And um, besides just in genealogies, but in the historical record, it will, like here, it tells us Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. Um, I always highlight those dates because that's how we can get chronologies and, and know certain things. Um, but sometimes we don't think maybe, you know, as you're just reading the Bible, uh, if you're paying close attention, you might remember, oh yeah, Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. But how many of you might have thought Isaac was younger when he married Rebecca? Because today, people get married much younger than that. So 40 years old, today when a person's 40 years old, you think, man, they're not married and they're 40 years old. Uh, because people typically get married much younger. Uh, but as a man, 40 years old wasn't like super old to get married in that day and age. And you're going to see... Um, you're going to see later on that people got married even later than that. Uh, any thoughts there about the age of Isaac when he gets married? Okay. Um, this might not be commonly known, and it's not, I don't think. But just to give you an idea, so in, at the same time Isaac is getting married, uh, in 1856 B.C., there is a king called Anakas, the king, the first king of the Argives and the founder of Argos in the Peloponnese Peninsula. Who knows where the Peloponnese Peninsula is? Ever heard of the Peloponnesian Wars? Don't get that confused with the Polynesian Wars because it's not Polynesia, it's Peloponnese. That is the southern peninsula, that's the Greek peninsula. So that southern region of the Greek peninsula is called the Peloponnese. And the Peloponnesian Wars is a famous war that happens much later in history um, between the city-states of Sparta and Athens. And the reason I pointed out this Inachus, the first king of the Argives, is because these are the people who are the roots, if, you, if, you, if we could say it that way, of those people that would eventually, um, that we have come to know in history as the Greeks, the Spartans, the Athenians, the Trojan Wars, even predating you know, the, the war between Sparta and Athens, but the Trojan Wars, the Mycenaeans and the the Greeks that went over to fight the Trojans. Well, this guy, Anakis, and these people, the Argives and Argos, this is where these civilizations developed from. Argos, it's, there's also a river called the Anakis River, and 
this is also the roots of a lot of the mythology that developed in Greece. So some believe that this king was a, a god, a river god. There's a river by his name. Ancient historians talk about this king, not just a god, not just a river, but an actual king. And Argos was the city that he founded. All this took place on the Greek peninsula there, and all these people would later become very influential in history. Uh, ultimately, this is where, you know, the Greek empires that rose to power and ruled the world, you know, these are the people that, that, that they took over. Alexander the Great didn't come from the south. He actually came from the north, but he took over the entire Greek peninsula and eventually took over much of the, the world, the known world at that time. This is 1,100 years before the founding of Rome. So before the story of Romulus and Remus, and when Romulus founds the city of Rome, this is 1,100 years before the founding of Rome, which would go from a city to a republic, to a world-dominating empire for over 500 years. Just to give you an idea of where we're at in history. 1836 B.C., speaking of history, who knows what happened in 1836 A.D.? Yes, and what happened in Texas in 1836 A.D.? Huh? Yes, remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. But we're far, far before the Alamo. 1836 B.C., how old was Isaac when he got married? 40. After 19 years of barrenness, Rebekah gives birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. So, Rebecca was barren for almost 20 years. They get married, and Rebecca is barren for 19 years before she has children. And she gives birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. 1825 BC. Now, this, so all of this is happening. Isaac. And um, or Jacob, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac, he gives birth to his twin boys through his wife, Rebecca, in 1836. In 1825 BC, the king of Thebes, not Thebes, but Thebes with a B, of Upper Egypt drives out the Hyksos, you probably have never heard of them. And you maybe have never heard of Thebes or Upper Egypt. Do you know why it's called Upper Egypt? It is above Lower Egypt. That's right. And what is, what, what is it that makes Upper and Lower Egypt? Yeah, but what is the dividing line? 
So can you picture Egypt on a map? What, what part of Egypt is on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea? It is Lower Egypt. In what part, what direction is Lower Egypt? It is north. It's kind of confusing because we think, you know, the seashore should be south because where we are. Yeah, the flow of the Nile. So Upper Egypt is the southern part of Egypt coming down from the plateau. So when I was in Ethiopia, um, the, the Rift Valley runs from Central Africa all the way to Damascus, Syria, I was told. I didn't know it ran that far, but it does. And the Nile River starts there. I mean, it starts far in Africa, flows through. It's the longest river in the world. Uh, and it flows from uh, the plateau in Upper Egypt down into Lower Egypt and, of course, empties in the Mediterranean. And so Upper and Lower Egypt were separate regions geographically, and they were separate, separate peoples lived there. Um, and so in 825, the people of Upper Egypt, the king of Thebes, drives out these people by the name of Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S. Now, they came into Egypt in 2084. We, I didn't point this out to you. I should have. But in 2084 B.C., about 250 years earlier, these people called the Hyksos, came from the west. They came from Arabia. So Josephus, um, there's a, there's a, a historian, uh, Ethiopian, I'm sorry, Egyptian historian named Manetho. Manetho is an Egyptian historian, an ancient historian. And according to Josephus, who quotes him, these guys came from the West. Some people say they came from Arabia. Um, but they came from the West into Egypt, into Lower Egypt, to the Nile region. Because if you look at a map of Egypt that kind of gives you a colored map, you know, uh, Egypt is all desert except along the Nile. It's a very lush, fertile, green place. And so... These guys come from the west and they settle in the Nile River Valley in lower Egypt. And they rule there for 250 years. The term Hyksos was historically translated shepherd kings. So they were called the shepherd kings. It, it is now believed that that word didn't really mean shepherd. And a lot of this is because of the hieroglyphics. There was a there was like a shepherd's staff. But they believe now that what that really mean was, was ruler or kings of foreign lands. So the Egyptians called them this, Hyksos. Uh, ancient historians says it meant shepherd kings, but now they believe that it actually means kings of foreign lands. And these kings of foreign lands or these shepherd kings came in and ruled Egypt for 250 years. They were not Egyptian. They were foreigners who ruled. But they didn't like disrupt Egyptian culture. They let the Egyptians have their culture, have their religion. They, they just, 
they lived there, they ruled there, and they allowed the Egyptians to basically still be unique in Egyptian, in, in their beliefs, in their culture. Um, but they ruled for quite a while. Uh, and, and according to Manetho, so now in 1825, 250 years after their arrival, uh, the king of Thebes in Upper Egypt comes against them and basically drives them out of Egypt. And they go back to where they came from and they go back to basically the land of Canaan. They don't go up to Assyria or Mesopotamia because the Assyrians were a great power up there. And according to ancient historians, they leave Egypt, they go, they go back east from where they came from, and they go to an area we know as Judah, and they establish a great city there called Herosalama, or that we know as Jerusalem. So the ancient city of Salem or Jerusalem, according to ancient historians, was, full, was established and built by these people when they were driven out of Egypt. And they basically went back to where they had come from, or the area similar to where they'd come from, and built Jerusalem. Modern historians have found out more information about these people. So now, when you read... When you read historians like Josephus or you read even like Jerome and Clement and, and Eusebius and some of these guys who were uh, historians in the Christian era, era they um, mistakenly believe that these Hyskos people were the ancient Israelites who left Egypt and came to the land of Canaan. We know that's not correct. We know that that happened later in history. But it's interesting about these people. So modern historians have now found out a lot of information. They know that these people were not Egyptians. They were more Canaanite in their art, in their beliefs, in, in all of their practices, when you dig now in Egypt and, and they know the city where they settled, uh, that they built their capital and were, was their center of commerce and government, they found this place, they've done extensive digs there, and, and they find that these people who ruled in this very ancient time in Egypt were, were not Egyptian at all. They were more Canaanite in everything that they did. And so you've got these people there and they've traced them back. So over the years, I have a point to telling you all this, over the years, many people thought they came from various areas and they, there was conjecture, well, they could have come from the Levant, the Northern Africa region and come from the West and migrated into Egypt. Well, we know now that that's actually, well, Washington Post is calling me. No, not really. Um, 
what we know now is that because of modern archaeology, uh, that these people actually originated. Now, this is modern historians, modern archaeologists. These Hyskos people actually originated in northern Mesopotamia. It's where they ultimately came from. Now, why is that important? It's not that they came from their original, or, or when they came from to Egypt. They're saying this people group that we know lived in Egypt for 250 years and ruled in Egypt, and we have dynasties of kings in Egyptian hieroglyphs and Egyptian historical records. It, we've speculated, historians have speculated where they came from, what, you know, who are they? Well, now we know. They're Semitic, they're more consistent with the Canaanites, and ultimately they came from Mesopotamia. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because if you remember our, our history and our timeline, where did everybody come from post-flood? Well, they came off the ark. And what we know is they came off the ark, and from the ark they moved southeast, and then they came from the east and traveled west to the Fertile Crescent or to Mesopotamia, which is commonly known by archaeologists and historians as the cradle of civilization. This is where these people originally came from, which would make perfect sense because after Babel, that's, that's where the people were dispersed from and so now history and archaeology has proven that these high ghost people that for many, many centuries, people didn't know really where they came from, except they came from the West, but didn't know where they actually originated from. Well, this is where they originate from, which is very consistent with the biblical record, uh, because that's where the dispersion from Babel uh, originated as people groups begin to migrate to the ends of the earth. So those, those people are driven out of Egypt and they go back to the area that we know as Canaan. Uh, now Abraham is there and there are other people there, Canaanites. And so some people believe, you know, these, these could possibly be, um, you know, the Phoenicians, the people we know as the Phoenicians. They were commonly called Canaanites. Uh, the Phoenicians were basically Canaanite. Um, and, you'll, you know, we'll learn about the Phoenicians later on in history. They're a fascinating group of people. But one thing about these Hyskos people that came from the West into Egypt, when they came, it is believed that they brought with them technology that the Egyptians, the people living in Lower Egypt, did not have. They believe that they may have introduced horses. They may have introduced the compound bow. They may have introduced um, uh, certain types of weaponry and metal, metallurgy and metalworks that, that may not have existed at that time in Egypt. Uh, that's still a little bit unknown, but it's believed generally that they brought a lot of technology with them and then left it in Egypt when they left. All right, any questions there? 
So the point there is, you know, we read about people groups in the Bible, but we don't often think about, well, where did those people come from? You know, we read about them, it's like, well, they're there, but we don't really think about where they come from, where they come from and when they got there. And, um, you know, it's easy to read these accounts and just think these people have always lived there, but they haven't always lived there. Uh, they came from somewhere. And we know that from eight people coming off an ark, the world is being populated and people are migrating and moving. And so this is just one example of a people group that migrated into an area and had a great impact on it, migrated back out of that area and left their impact there in Egypt. In Egypt, from that upper, upper Egypt and lower Egypt that were two separate geographic areas, who had separate people and separate ways of life, eventually became one. And uh, in large part, when the king of Thebes from Upper Egypt came and drove these people out, this is when Egypt began to really function more as one nation and eventually grew into a unified country. Question. Yes. Could he have been Hyskos? Salem. He could have been. I mean, there were people there, so these people could have come from those people and just went back. So, um, you know, Hyskos, it's just a name that the Egyptians gave them that meant kings of foreign uh, lands or shepherd kings. Remember... Now, this is interesting, um, and, and I'm not convinced that the shepherd king thing, uh, because that's throughout many, many centuries, that's what this word heiskos meant. Remember when Joseph uh, is in Egypt and he brings Jacob and the family there, what does he tell them? Tell Pharaoh your shepherds, because shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. And it's possible that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians because the Hyskos people were hated by the Egyptians. They, they, this was, a, this was a, like a derogatory name. They, they, didn't, they were foreign rulers. And so these foreign people came in and ruled Egypt for 250 years. And it's not that the Egyptians liked them. They were happy to see them go. So it's possible that shepherds being an abomination to the Egyptians could have originated back here with these people. Um, I don't know, but that's certainly, I think, within the realm of possibility. But there's no way of knowing. We don't know where milk. Kizadek came from. It always was a, an interesting point to, for them to say that because we also know that the Egyptians themselves had flocks and herds. Yeah. And so it was always just like, what does that mean? You know, is that just a hated occupation that somebody's got to do it, or is that something else? That would it seems to fit nicely with yeah. the idea that it's because there's a, a group here. Right. Yeah. I'm sure there are. There were people groups that did that, but there were, 
So when you, you know, when we get to Egypt, there's a lot of history about Egypt. When we get to the, to the study of Egypt, you'll realize, you know, Egypt, like a lot of cultures in the ancient world and, and still today, we just, it's just different. There were people of different classes, obviously, and different occupations very often determine what class you were in. We know this is true in, in, in India, for instance, and it's not technically legally true anymore in India, but practically speaking, because India has lived under the caste system for thousands of years, literally, um, those things don't just die because someone passes a law. And those castes of people are specific to occupations. I'm sure it was the same in Egypt. So whoever, whoever was tasked with those occupations, maybe because they weren't Egyptian, maybe they were other people groups from other areas, uh, and they didn't mind being shepherds. But to the Egyptians, shepherds were an abomination. And it, and it could have come from the hatred of these people that ruled in Lower Egypt for 250 years. So 1821, Abraham dies at the age of 175. 1821, Abraham dies at 175. Um, he dies 100 years after entering the land of Canaan. And Genesis 25, verses 7 through 10, tells us that Abraham is buried by his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Now, I think that's interesting because very often I think we read the Genesis account and we read the account about Isaac and Ishmael and Ishmael you know, is the son of the flesh, and Ishmael is driven away, you know, when he's in, uh, uh, I think it was Isaac's 14th birthday. So, you know, Ishmael is like 24, 25 years old when him and his mother are driven away. And she's in the desert, uh, in the wilderness, thinking that her and her son are going to die, and the angel comes and, you know, gives him water and gives him the promise that God's going to bless Ishmael. Well, here we are, a uh, hundred years after Abraham enters the promised land, and Isaac and Ishmael are burying their father. So even though Ishmael was cast out, there was still a relationship there. There was still contact. They just didn't live in the same tent. Um, Abraham lived 15 years after the birth of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, the son of blessing, Isaac's son, not his first son, but the son who received the blessing of the firstborn, lived in tents with Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know this because Hebrews 11.9 tells us that Abraham lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So Jacob is alive when Abraham dies. And Jacob has lived with his grandfather for a number of years uh, before he dies. And now his uncle Ishmael... His step-uncle is helping bury his grandfather. It's, it's interesting to me because that just gives us a very, a very brief glimpse 
that these families still had interaction with one another. All right, any thoughts there? All right, four years later in 1817, a guy by the name of Eber or Heber dies at the age of 430 years. You'll miss him if you don't pay attention. It's just a very brief blurb in the scripture, and I'm sorry I didn't put the, the, um, the reference down, uh, but I think, I think he was the father of Peleg. But he outlived Abraham, and Heber was the longest living of those born after the flood. 430 years born after the flood. He was a son of Shem and um, lived longer than Abraham. It's from Heber or Eber that Abraham first came to be known as a Hebrew. This is where the term Hebrew comes from. It's from this, this person in Abraham's lineage, Eber. And from this man, all the descendants of Abraham became known as Hebrews. It was the land of the Hebrews because of this guy here, Heber. Died in 1817 B.C. at the age of 430 years. That's old. 18, huh? It may be, it may be because the, it said that he died at 430 years, but, and it must be the way, the way they have that. The way it's translated from the Hebrew to the English, it sound like it would be 464 years. But he lived a long time. 1804 B.C., Isaac begins to prosper. So, um, I don't know why I have an H there on your piece of paper. but uh, So, somewhere around this time, after the death of, of Abraham, uh, the promise God made to Abraham about his, him and his descendants prospering, that God would be with them and prosper them, we begin to see Isaac prospering. In 1796 B.C., Esau takes two wives from the Hittites. And the Bible says that Rebekah, his, his mother, is grieved because he took wives from um, the heathens, from the pagan tribes, instead of wives from their own people. This was part of the rivalry and the tension between Esau and Jacob. Esau was contrary to uh, his parents' advice, his parents' recommendations, contrary to what God had commanded. And it's almost like, you know, 
he gave up his birthright. He sold his birthright. He was flipping about all that. And there doesn't seem to be any repentance here. And he takes wives against his, his parents' wishes from these pagan tribes. And the Bible says those two wives of Esau were grievous to Rebekah. So they weren't trying to get along. They were antagonistic to Esau's mother, and Rebekah was grieved because of it. Um, in 18, I'm sorry, in 1760 B.C., Jacob receives the blessing of the firstborn. So this is the famous account of Rebekah telling uh, Jacob, you know, go put on your brother's clothes while your brother's gone and go get the blessing. And he does so. Um, I think it's worth talking about this for just a moment. I don't want to get into theological discussions as we go through the timeline, but I, I think that uh, Rebecca is often maligned um, and Jacob is often maligned because of this episode. Uh, and it's told that, you know, Jacob deceives her husband. I mean, that Rebecca deceives her husband, and she does, but she doesn't do it maliciously because she hates her husband. She does it out of God's grace because she loves her husband, because her husband, Isaac, is getting ready to disobey God and give the blessing of the firstborn to the one that God said would not receive it. And Isaac was going to go against God's command, and Rebecca knew it. And Rebecca, I believe, out of love for her husband and because she wanted God's commandment to be followed, did what she had to do to save her husband from, from distinctly disobeying God. And I think Rebecca here is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our own lives in that how do we come to the Father? We come to the Father in the identity of another with the clothing of another and the fragrance of another. Just like, just like Jacob was brought to his father in the clothing of, of Esau with the fragrance of Esau so that his father thought it was and identified him as his preferred son, his firstborn son. And so it was in 1760 that Jacob receives the blessing of the firstborn. And in doing so, he incurs the wrath of Esau and hears of Esau's plan to murder him and departs to Mesopotamia. When he departs from Mesopotamia, Genesis 28.1 tells us that Isaac blesses Jacob's departure and makes sure that Jacob knows that he is to not take wives from the pagans, but to go to his own people and get a wife from his own people, thus obeying God's commandment. And so uh, Jacob leaves in 1760 with the blessing of Isaac, not just the blessing of the firstborn, but Isaac blesses his journey away from home. 
1759, Jacob arrives. He meets Laban, the Syrian. He goes to the family of his ancestors, of his fathers, and he marries. It is believed that Jacob was 77 years old when he married Leah, thinking he was marrying Rachel. 77. I've seen one chronology that says he may have been as young as 60, but according to Usher, and the chronology Usher gives us, Jacob would have been 77 when he married Leah. Now think about that. I, I, I kind of blew my mind because I've never read that story and thought that Jacob was 77 or even 60 years old when he is, is working for his wife. All of that time, Jacob is at home with his father and his mother, living in that family. Today, you know, we'd say that he was a, I don't know, there'd be a derogatory term for him today. He's still living at home with his parents. He's still living in a tent with his parents. Probably had his own tent, but... He was 84 when he married Rachel. All right, thoughts there. Any thoughts there? How old were Rachel and Leah? Not that old. They would have been much younger. And, and that's the thing, you know, um, when a father gave his daughter to a man, the, the point there was that man would, would have to be able to provide for, take care of. There would have been a great dowry paid, which is why, that's why uh, Jacob worked seven years. Jacob leaves his father's home, it doesn't tell us what he carried with him, how much money or what he had, but we do know the dowry for those wives was seven years of labor. I mean, basically, Jacob was in servitude to the father of those girls for 14 years in order to earn his wives. That was his dowry that he paid. That's a, that's a pretty hefty price. And when you consider how God blessed Jacob's labors uh, and prospered Laban, I mean greatly uh, through, through those 14 years of labor, actually he stayed there a total of, of uh, 20 years and prospered greatly. So they would have been much younger. Uh, it's just the way it is. I, it was interesting when I was in Ethiopia, uh, it was not uncommon 
that, that night that we went to the uh, marriage seminar there in Addis at that church. And so they had, a, they had a marriage seminar for couples, very nice, you know, every, you know, you, I don't know if you, maybe you didn't see, I don't know if I put the videos out, uh, but, you know, the videos I have, I mean, the couples are wearing their, like the women have their wedding dresses on. They've got traditional Ethiopian, Pastor Frazier had his suit on that he wore 16 years previous at his wedding, he had his wedding suit on. And so these couples were coming and um, all dressed up very nicely. And what was interesting to me, not, not all of them, but much more than you would see here in America, it was not uncommon to see older men with very young wives. Uh, in fact, one of the pastors, Pastor Solomon, I'd met him at the, the ministry for the street people, and he was one of the pastors there at that church. And, um, I mean, you know, he's, I don't know how old he is, but he's got to be close to my age. He, he looks, I'm not saying I look young, but he looked older than me. You know, they live in a country where it's harder living, so maybe he wasn't as old as me, but... My point is, uh, I guarantee you he was well over 50 years old. And his wife was, I mean, I would guess easily 20, maybe 30 years his junior, you know. But in that culture where you, you are an older man and you have means and you've established a life and you've got a way to support a family. And so when a father gives a daughter away in marriage, she wants to make sure that, it, that she will be cared for. And so you consequently see these marriages between older men and younger women because there it's not all about the emotional feeling. I'm not saying, you know, these couples don't love one another because it was very interesting because I'm thinking about all this as I'm watching this. Can they play these games? And some of the couples that, you know, got called up there to play these games, some of them were, you know, the, the guy was obviously older than the, than the wife. Some of them looked like they were similar in age, you know, older couples. And it was a very, very diverse mix of age and everything, but... But all of them, even the ones where it's the older and the younger wife, the older man and younger wife, I mean, there was, um, they just, they genuinely looked like they loved one another. They were having fun and laughing and, you know, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. But, you know, that's just a different dynamic you see in, I think in third world countries, especially where, in some of these cultures, marriages are arranged. That's not, you know, you don't have the same things that you have here and the same means of meeting people here. I mean, you drive down Addis Ababa, city of 10 million people, and there aren't nightclubs and bars and internet cafes. And I mean, how do people meet one another? 
I mean, they're more than likely people from the same village, the same neighborhood. Their families have known each other. People don't move around. They, they don't have the means to move around. And so it's a very different world. And in this world of the Bible, it would have been even more so then, so that someone that old marrying a very young girl was not, was not unheard of because that, that would have been safety and security. It's very odd to us. But it kind of also, I think, you know, just like, it still kind of blows my mind that, you know, Jacob was 60 plus years old when he leaves home to go find his wife. And, you know, part of me wants to ask the question, why did he wait so long? Well, why do you think he waited so long? That's a good question. Why do you think Jacob waited so long to go find a wife? Huh? Could be. Could be. I, there's, I mean, when you think about it, Jacob did not, when did Isaac give the blessing? Isaac gives the blessing when Jacob is that old. So there was something about that blessing that was a release for, for Jacob. Now, it tells us that Esau goes and gets wives, but it doesn't tell us that Esau did that because his parents told him to. It says Esau did that and his parents were grieved because of the wives he took. It's not that he couldn't have taken those wives. Or maybe it wasn't that he couldn't get married. But for whatever reason, I don't know, in my mind, it seems like there's some relationship to the blessing and Jacob going and getting his wife. Why did it take so long? I mean, ultimately, I think we have to say it was God's providence. But I don't know if everybody waited that long, but there seems to be a relationship there with that blessing uh, that came. Uh, what else? Any other thoughts about that? I don't think so. I think he had to work 14 years to get Rachel. Oh, oh, he went ahead and gave her and then he worked another. Yeah. Uh, anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, that's a that's an interesting thing to, to look at and see. Where are we at there? So 
Sorry, I'm reading. That may be. All right. I'm going to have to look at that and see. I can't remember how old it said that uh, I think when Joseph was born, I believe Jacob would have been 91 years old when Joseph was born. It's just, it's, it just is interesting that he was that old. I'll do the math and see. I, I'm not sure about Joseph. I'll look and see. All right, any other thoughts there? Um, Let me get out the annals of the world here and see. Esau was 40 years old and he took wives from the land of the Hittites. Yes, according to this chronology... He was 40 when he took wives. Now, uh, it, it's he was 40 when he took wives. That was in 1796 B.C. And 1760 B.C., which is 36 years later, is when... Um, is when Isaac gives, it's not when he sold his birthrights, when, it's when Isaac gives the birthright. Esau already had the wives when Isaac gives the birthright.
that I don't know that it tells us when that happened, but that would have been before. I mean, obviously before this time that Isaac's giving it and very possibly before Esau gets married. Yeah, I think that happened earlier in their life because he, when he sells it for the bowl of red lentils, but that's, that's interesting to me, too, because think about that. I mean, there's something about, about that. Just think about two brothers who are rivals. They're two very different individuals in every way. It doesn't say they didn't like each other, but it seems like there had to be some kind of ongoing tension there between those two. At whatever point that Jacob is cooking those lentils and Esau comes in and, and he says, give me some of that red stew before I die. And Jacob says, I'll give you some if you'll give me your birthright. And he says, what is my birthright to me if I'm dead? I mean, if you just think today about two brothers having that interaction, that would not be something that would be binding. Like, oh, that didn't count, you know. I just said that. I didn't mean that. But there was something about that. I mean, neither one of those brothers forgot. And we could say, you know, well, it's divine providence. But think about, how meaningful your word was or that idea of the blessing was so real that something really transpired. I know it was God's providence that Jacob would get it, but to me that doesn't diminish the fact that that interaction between those brothers, that transaction was binding there was no, oh, I'm just, I was just joking or I was desperate or Jacob said, yeah, you know, gosh, um, you know, I, I, you know that, that, that was kind of bad of me to put you in that situation. I, I mean, it's like once the transaction was done, it was done. There was no question that the birthright belonged to Jacob. Of course, God had already declared that the older uh, would serve the younger. But I think that's fascinating. I mean, what, what is it that we have lost that the, our words don't really mean a lot today the way when you read the scripture, especially in these situations, I mean, those words were binding. And that really kind of, I always wonder, you know, how... How binding are our words and we don't realize it? Do you ever think about that? We say things, how binding are our words that we just say? And we don't think they mean anything, but do they mean something to God? I mean, are we bound? Have we spoken things 
and we are bound by our words and we don't even realize it? That's kind of a scary thought to me. I, this, I think, is why Jesus said you'll give an account for every idle word spoken. That's really a scary thought. For me, I speak a lot of words. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I mean, two brothers. This interaction doesn't seem like it would be that binding, but evidently it was very binding. And they both knew it was binding, and they did not forget it. Even Jacob, I mean, even Isaac, when Isaac gives the blessing, and then Esau comes in. He says, where's my blessing? And what does Isaac say? I gave it. I don't. There is no blessing left. It's like, don't you have anything for me? He's like, your brother got it. He got it all. I mean, you know, there was no, well, time out. That was a foul. He deceived me, so that obviously doesn't count. That's what we would say, right? No, that doesn't count. But it counted. I mean, it counted. And there was no, there was no way Isaac could take it back. Why do we not see our words as powerful today as that? Should we? Should we not? How should we, how should we think about those things? I think, to me, that's a really interesting thought. Mm-hmm. That would be the, the most perfect word, the most binding word. And the farther we, we come down the line, we've, we've lost the, the magic of words, the, the bindingness of mm-hmm. words. Yeah, I agree. And I think especially in our culture, there has, and I, you know, if, if, if you think about this, to me, this is, um, this is purposeful. I think there has been a diminishing of the value of words and the impact of words because words are just so flippant. They're just used. They're just thrown around. And we have lost the, the impact and the power and the significance of our words. And I think that is a tactic of the enemy that is purposeful. And I think you make a really good point, Bennett. I mean, just to think about, I mean, Jesus is the word. He's the logos. How did God create everything? God created everything through words. I mean, if you want to to wonder how powerful words are, everything around us has been created through words. And that alone should inform us how powerful words are. And um, when you read these stories and you, you look at these characters and you realize 
words really meant something back then. When a father proclaimed a blessing, it, it had real power. It was given with that expectation. It was received with that expectation. And, and those words were not seen as empty words. And I know, you know, that's something that, that I feel like is, even just for me personally, it's like, wow, you know, I've never, I've never thought about it in that way. But I think we should think about those things.